forever. Dog. Hello, I'm Alison Raskin. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and person, because I can't think of anything. Hi, I'm Gabby Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, and tie-dye enthusiast. Ooh, love Look that tie-dye. I saw tie-dye all the time in um, high school, and then it just like went out of style, or I became a coward, unable to wear it. And um, I think it's back. Oh, it's back in full force, baby. Right? Can't get enough of it. Can I tell you a story or just a fact that will not surprise you at all? Sure. To go to college, I bought all my sheets and everything, pillowcase and everything white. And then I tie-dyed them myself in my backyard to bring them to college. That sounds lovely. I was so proud of myself. I thought (laughs) I was the coolest. Yeah, I think that's the difference between us. I never in once in my life have thought I'm the coolest. Um, (laughs) (laughs) This is just between us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice, ridiculous games and brutal honesty. But for the month of May, we are bringing you a mini season called Mental Health 101, where we ask some of the most basic but most important questions surrounding mental health. And this week, we are very excited to talk all about people of color's relationship to therapy and why therapy has traditionally not been geared for them and the changes that are being made in the field to make it better. Yeah, our guest today is Melissa Moya Brinkman, who's a first generation Cuban-American licensed therapist and someone who asked to be on the show at such a perfect moment. It was like kismet. It was amazing. We were like looking for guests in this realm and she popped up like a beautiful ray of sunshine, a lightning strike at the exact moment. Like I really enjoyed the interview. We ju- we already did the interview. I don't want to give people a peek behind the curtain, but we did already do the interview and it was great. It's really important to to speak to this element of therapy because as much as Gabby and I and our white selves can be like, go to therapy. Therapy's great. We love therapy. It is a much more complicated relationship for other people. And there's a lot of repairing that needs to be done, I think, between the profession and marginalized groups. But Melissa is an example of an incredible therapist who is such an asset to her clients and our community. And hopefully this will be as fun for you as it was for us. Stick around after the break. Just Between Us Mental Health 101. This week, we're talking all about people of color and therapy. Our guest this week is Melissa Moya Brinkman, a first-generation Cuban-American licensed therapist and caver of a very excellent Instagram. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, thank you. I love that intro. It's like perfect. So I think it's so important to talk about this because can you speak to a little bit like how psychology and therapy were developed and how it wasn't really developed to include non-white clientele? Yeah, like the foundations of psychology were all based off of straight white European men. And that was um, the context with which they looked at people. So anything that didn't fit the box that they had created was a problem. 
right? Like up until like the seventies being queer was like a part of the DSM. Like it was considered diagnosable or like something was mentally wrong with you that you identify this way. And we see that a lot of it does come from the fact that, yeah, like the foundations, the roots of psychology are geared to treat straight white men for sure. How are people of color left out of that conversation? Oh, because like, for example, I always think of things like from a spiritual perspective, because my family's from Cuba. So when like the government took over, uh, Christianity wasn't allowed. So I have people in my family who practice like religions that certain things that they say could be confused for psychosis but it's like spiritually based. And so if we're looking at somebody like Freud, he'd be like, oh, you're having a psychotic episode. But in some countries, like these experiences are normalized and are like a deeply part of the culture and how they identify. So like that's, I I always think of that as like my first example with how like straight white (laughs) psychologists of those times, they would have thought that like oh this is definitely psychosis but when we unpack and unravel like some of these things are very much a part of like these people's culture and that doesn't mean that um there's something wrong with them or that they're like quote unquote crazy which is what a lot of my latinx clients like come to me with they'll be like oh am i crazy because of this and it's like no this is like foundationally a part of our culture yeah we're, we're always advised in my program to like take into account the person's culture and like if that behavior is you know normal in that culture and then therefore like we shouldn't be pathologizing it exactly right and so what has the field been doing to catch up you know i think that there's maybe there's been a shift or there's been an attempt at a shift in the last few decades with feminist therapy and multicultural therapy like what changes have you seen being made in the field Oh, I think that now, like even for licensing, um, you have to have some type of cultural competency class under your belt. You have to have some credits that cover cultural competency so that you check your bias. And I love that. I love that they are holding therapists accountable in that sense of like, you have to make sure that you're like keeping tabs on what you're learning and how you're staying on top of your cultural competence when you are practicing with people. What does that include? What kind of stuff would that include to to teach you? Yeah, like um, talking, you know, having like certain questions that you ask people, not pretending to know just because you might belong to a certain culture doesn't mean that you know everything about every like culture that there is out there and normalizing asking clients questions and admitting like, oh, I don't know what that is. What do you mean? How can I support you in that? For you, what would that mean for your family? Like little things like that, like where you normalize admitting like you don't know everything about everything. And I think also what it does is that when you do take some of these like cultural competency classes, it breaks down the power dynamic too between yourself and your client because you're admitting like, sure, in this context, I'm supposed to be the authority figure, but you know more about this than I do. So please step up and teach me because I want to be able to support you however you need based off of cultural context. And how does a therapist work on on breaking down and examining their own biases and how that can interfere with their interactions with clients? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> I wonder if maybe 
if you are experiencing like some type of um, like counter-transference in the session, if it is rooted in not understanding somebody's culture or if there's something that you literally just don't get and maybe checking in with yourself, like I, I would think that maybe that's like the m- most logical way of going about it. Like check yourself and see like if your client is sharing something that is culturally based that you don't understand like where is this coming for you like what is this about for you is there some bias there on your end that you just assumed something and you're like wrong about it but check in with yourself and I think a lot of people you know because of these biases that their therapists have if you are a person of color you can have these kind of really harmful experiences in in therapy and like the form of of microaggressions, right? And so when is it a line between like, oh, okay, let me give this therapist the benefit of the doubt that they aren't familiar with my culture. And when is it like, oh, what they're saying and how their point of view is actually harmful to me? I would think maybe it's like case by case. Like if you have like a longstanding working relationship with your therapist and in the past there hasn't been an experience like this and overall you feel safe, you feel good. And then something happens like that changes the relationship because of some type of microaggression. And if I would think if you have that type of relationship with your therapist, I would hope that it's a safe enough space to call your therapist out on it and explain like, oh, actually, like when you said this, it could be offensive because of this, this and this. But if it's like a new person and it felt really unsafe and it was just like, whoa, that was like way too deep. What was that? Then I think it, it's like an indicator for you, like, oh, this person like might not be the safe person for me. You mentioned religion as as part of it and spirituality as part of it. And I think there's like a a few things, you know, related to different cultures where maybe they practice some sort of religious ceremony that might seem strange to the therapist, but also like family relationships and living situations, you know, multi-generational housing and like a little bit more of like a a codependence in families come to how, how does the therapist approach like I don't know, different, like, I I feel like there's so many things that are normalized that are like, you leave your house, you're only healthy if you have your own place to live. And you're only healthy if you have your own job and you have boundaries with your parents and all this stuff that is like very Eurocentric. Oh, 100%. Yes. And this is, I think, one of the main challenges that I see with children of immigrants. Like, it's very normal for immigrant families, like you said, to have different generations under one household. And in some cultures, like, it's normal. You live with your parents until you get married. And then you go from your parents' house to your husband's house. Like, that's the transition. So then these other things that are like really popular in like American society is that you go away for school, you live in a dorm, you have roommates. Yeah, no, not always the case for other people. So for some of my clients, like I call them like the trailblazers, like they'll be the first ones to defy their parents and their grandparents or even great grandparents, depending on the household. And then it's like identifying for them what feels true to them and then how to communicate that with their family. If they're coming to me and they're saying, 
my goal is I want to go away for school. There's a college out of state. I want to live in a dorm. How do I talk to my parents about this? Then that's my role, right? I have a supporting role. Like you've told me, this is what your goal is. I'm going to help you like communicate with your parents. And I had to talk to parents too. I've had to kind of explain to them, like, these are the goals. They're not doing it to go against you because in certain families, it could feel like a betrayal if you're being a trailblazer essentially. So when they come to me with a goal, whichever goal it is, whether it's to move away or to stay within the family and like survive like that dynamic. My goal and my role is to support them whichever way they decide. And I think that may be an indicator of if whether or not this therapist is a right match for you is if they are able to understand that some families are more enmeshed than other families culturally and like to have this expectation, let's say if you're from a Latin family to be like, well, just tell your mom to mind her own business. That might, that's not going to work within the culture, (laughs) you know? So is that maybe a signal? I think, yeah, like, well, it's always a benefit when you have a therapist who gets it like on a really deep level that's always like just the best is when you find somebody of like your same cultural background there are some things that like they you say it and your therapist is like oh yeah I totally get that and has maybe had to navigate some of those challenges too and knows like the emotional and like the psychological stuff that comes up when you are like navigating certain family dynamics that are super embedded in culture So do you recommend looking for a therapist with a similar culture or do you think having a therapist who might be of a different culture but is has like cultural humility is is also an appropriate fit? Yeah, you know, I feel like 10 out of 10, like gold star for sure is finding a therapist who has your same background. Like that's easy peasy. It should be right. Like I would hope, I would hope that that means that it facilitates the therapeutic relationship and that they could really get you and help you at a deep level. And if you're in a place where like you don't have access, right? Like depending on where you live and who's licensed in your area, then yeah, of course, like finding somebody who has, like you said, that cultural humility and that they're able to collaborate with you and admit when they don't understand something and they want you to help them understand because ultimately it helps you as the client. How do you handle with clients how much is spent on and how much do you handle in general? Like either they come in and they're experiencing microaggressions, they come in, they're experiencing, you know, larger racism, let's say in their job or their school trauma in terms of like, you know, what we see on the news or like what's going on in the country. You know, I'm sure like when there was a lot of press on the children in cages on the border, I imagine a lot of immigrant people who were in therapy were feeling very traumatized by that. So what are the levels like? How do you how much time are you spending on like racism and microaggressions? And then also like what do you do for someone who's like, I'm just like overwhelmed by how much uh, society at large hates me? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's really interesting because it varies. 
it varies from person to person. Um, during the Black Lives Matter protests last year, I had a client that I was like, I want to check in. Like, how's it going? And she was like, I can't talk about this. Like, I can't do it. She's like, I do live a Black life every day. I need this space to just be talking about something else because I'm talking about this all the time. So I honor that too. Like, if they're coming in and they feel kind of like burnt out from it being everywhere and therapy has to be about something else that day, then that's okay too. I think it varies. Like I have clients that do have experiences at work or maybe in friendship groups, like other spaces of their lives. And then they do need to use sessions to process what happens and like how to go back and have certain conversations with people. So I find that it varies. Like some people, they really want to talk about it. They want to process it. And then other people, they feel like it's in all areas of their lives, like it's being talked about so much that they feel a little bit burnt out from it and they want to take like a break. Is that part of it? Is it like coming up with solutions or ways to talk to certain people about how they're treating you? And is do you also provide ways for that person to like center themselves or like, you know, handle the panic or stress or trigger that happens during these situations? Yeah, like both. I definitely tackle both. So like, what did this bring up for you? What did this remind you of? Coping skills, like what could help you to self-soothe when you experience a trigger like this? Um, And then in other cases, if they tell me like, this is somebody that's important to me, And I want to stay friends with them, but how do I tackle what happened? How do I talk to them? Then we come up with little exercises and stuff that they can take back and and almost like role-playing and, okay, what do you want to say? What's your goal? What do you want to like, what's the point you want to like come across when you talk to them? So I do a little bit of both. Like if we need to process and, you know, heal from this and any coping skills that help you to get through it, we do that. And then if it's some like tackling this head first, we need to have this conversation. I do some of that too. Do you feel like one of the big shifts in therapy has been from everything being either the fault of the person or their mom (laughs) to recognizing (laughs) that like, that these bigger systems like racism, like homophobia, like poverty have a huge impact. And so how do you go about addressing these problems that like you and your client can't fix yourselves. Yes. That was like the big theme last summer. I felt like the big theme last summer was feelings of powerlessness because it feels like these larger systems that feel so out of our control are trickling down and affecting our mental health. Like that was like the big theme. I definitely tie in systems and families and history and I tie it all in because we don't live in a vacuum like all of it uh, plays a role in our mental health so absolutely like we take a look at like the bigger scheme of what's going on and even sometimes for some of my clients I'll tell them like think about the context with which your parents were growing up in and like what was like the media that was like popular back then what did they grow up believing what music did they listen to what was the message and notice how it's affected how like they view the world and so of course like the advice that your parents give you are coming from that lens and yeah I go like all the way (laughs) I like zoom out to then zoom back in for sure 
I think that's so helpful. And then when the issue is this level of powerlessness, what is there to do with that? You know, like, is it learning to sit with the discomfort of that? Is it helping them maybe find some advocacy or volunteering work that will help them feel like they're, you know, working towards a solution? Do you feel like as a therapist, it's kind of your job to also be a social justice advocate? Oh, a thousand percent. Yes, (laughs) that is totally at the root of the work that I do. There's a lot of advocacy for sure. I think it's fundamental. I don't think I could be a good or helpful therapist if I'm not fully aware of the suffering that my clients go through, not just from their like personal stories, but also because of the systems that have helped to essentially like oppress them and keep this in this like generational loop of suffering. So I feel like it is like super important to the work that I do. And yeah, like, well, I like to like empower my clients because I know that in a lot of areas of our life, we won't always have control over things. So like, what are some things that you can have like immediate control over? And number one, that's your thoughts, your attitude, your mindset, your breathing, your body, how you're eating. Like those are all immediately take back power and control over like by focusing on yourself. And then, yeah, like depending on the person, like I had a teenager, she's so funny. She's like telling me about how, um, like, and, and this was more so, I think shortly after like Black Lives Matter, she was transferring to a predominantly white school. We were getting ready to navigate that. She's like, yeah, I get on Instagram and it makes me sad. And then I get on TikTok and then I get sad. And she's like, I just don't want to be on anything because I don't want to be sad anymore. And so then in that instance, okay, how do you get your power back? you're feeling sad, you're feeling powerless because you're in this, all this suffering. So then how do you get your power back? And also a balance too, because my clients, like, cause I'm Hispanic, but I'm white passing. I totally have that privilege of walking into a room and nobody knows nobody if I'm Hispanic or not. But some of my clients, like they don't have that same. And so sometimes they experience fatigue. And it's exhausting to have to always be advocating. So then in that case, like find that balance when you do have the energy to advocate and fight cool. And when you don't cool too, Mm -hmm. like both are okay. What do you say to people who are like, you know, therapy is not in my culture. You know, I don't want to go to therapy. I feel like I'm just going to be misunderstood. But also like people in my immediate family are going to look askew at that. Yeah, which is a big issue for sure. And like many cultures, like Asian cultures, South Asian, the Latinx culture, that's a big deal. It's always nice to have somebody to listen to. Like, or somebody that listens to you, somebody that is objective, doesn't know anybody, right? Like, they don't know who your cousin is. They have no idea what's going on. They're just an objective person that can try to give you some objective feedback on whatever you have on. That's what I always tell people. Cause I used to, when I was in Philly, I was at a huge mental health agency, right in the heart of like a major Latinx community. And myself and another therapist, we were the only two Spanish speaking therapists. And so I would get people who were like trying trying it out but it was all very secret secret I had a lady who would whisper in her sessions and I'm like nobody can hear us (laughs) yeah because they're so terrified they're so scared and yeah like normalizing it and then what happens with some of these people is that they start like going to therapy and they see that it's like you know, it's helpful. It doesn't mean that you're you're the problem or anything. And then they start little by little to tell other people. And they start to tell their friends, maybe their cousins who are like their age. 
and it gets a little bit spread out that way. In fact, I find that most of my clients are referrals. Other people who felt really safe, they felt like I did a good job and then they passed the word. And I think that that's how therapy within like various communities of people of color, I think that's how it's eventually going to like really get normalized is when they do have good experiences, they'll spread the word and then it starts to get normalized little by little. How helpful is it to do therapy in the person's native language? Oh, very helpful, especially for trauma. Yeah, like clients with trauma, they prefer to tell the stories of what happens in their native language, for sure. Like it's, it's very like helpful. Do you think that one of the hurdles of, of certain cultures, you know, seeking therapy and accepting therapy is this sort of like mindset of like, we take care of our own we don't need outside help. And if you do need outside help, then that means that we have failed you. And then there's like the personalizing of like, you're only going to therapy because you think I failed you. Is that, do you Mm. see that like being an issue that comes up? Yes, yes. Right. Because like sometimes I'll have people that be like, oh yeah, this doesn't like exist (laughs) in the country where my parents are from. Like there is no therapy. You just go to your grandparents. Mm -hmm. And then what happens is that like, especially because I'm first generation American and I find like a lot of my clients are also first generation from like different cultures. Yeah. Like they'll be like, I tried to ask my grandma for this advice, but generationally, like she's just from a totally different generation. She grew up in a completely different country. And I see that she can't fully understand like what I'm coming to the table with. Like it's, there's just a big disconnect, but you're absolutely right. That is a challenge where like maybe older family members feel like they might've like failed in giving advice or what they have to say isn't valuable, which isn't true. Like I totally think that in a lot of families, older members of the family have a lot of wisdom and valuable advice to give. It's just that they love you so much in a lot of cases that it's not always going to be objective. They're going to want to like sway you in a direction that they probably think is like best for you. And so is that sort of the way to help them reframe it is like what you had spoken to before about like just having an objective party? Yes, totally. That it's like objective. It's somebody who has no idea, which is the feedback that my clients have given me. That's exactly what they've told me. They're like, oh, you you don't know anybody. You don't know anything. <laughs> you just give me like a non-biased opinion, which is totally true because I don't know anything. I can come to the issue from a lot of different angles because I'm not biased here. Mm-hmm. I have no idea what the full story is. And that's what they enjoy because when they do go to their friends or their siblings or their grandma, their grandma knows a little bit more history and background. And also grandma or whoever might kind of have like their own agenda. And because I'm like a random person, I don't have any agenda. My agenda is what are your goals? What do you want? How can I help you get there? (laughs) That's it. That's my only agenda. One of the things that's tough, right? I think especially, you know, is like these cultural traditions that are common and quote unquote normal, but have been proven scientifically to potentially be harmful, right? So like if you have, you know, a client who was physically reprimanded by their parent, right? That's like very culturally normal in some cultures, but like the the science and the research proves that that's actually like not an effective way to parent and it actually is harmful for the kid. So how do you balance something like that with a client? 
Yeah, because and I do um I don't work with like little ones anymore, but when I did, I would definitely let the parents know that like of course, like it was something that was so traditional in certain cultures, my own too. But no, like the science has shown that it's not effective whatsoever and it's actually like really harmful. And the goal is that like their kids don't fear them but respect consequences so when I used to work with the little ones I would tell the parents like straight up and I would educate them on that specifically that it's like not okay there's a lot of harm that's done and although it was something that was maybe done to you and to your dad and to your dad's dad it's like not okay yeah and that is my job sometimes like it hasn't always been easy sometimes I have like older clients um and it'll be I I check myself because you're so taught like respect your elders in fact don't be disrespectful da, 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 da. and I have to educate them on things and tell them like and that's a perfect example like hitting your kids with a belt or what we call una chancleta is not okay how do they take that you know because they're coming to me they've already done step one which is bought into therapy which is sometimes a miracle with like older latinx people so that was like always step one is that they're already coming to me for information uh, sometimes having that like authority role can kind of be helpful to the same way that they are with their kids their kids pediatrician or their teacher, I'm like kind of like at that level of authority. So they would respect my feedback because I was like educated and I was like an authority figure. So I would kind of like use that to my advantage to like finesse knowledge into my sessions with them. What if someone our age comes to you and is talking about their childhood and is talking about that and doesn't view that as traumatic, doesn't view that as abuse? Is it your job to say like, hey, maybe that is fucked up? Or is it sort of like cultural humility to be like, okay, if this person doesn't see this as a problem the way they grew up or they don't see these things that I think I get uncomfortable with like the colonization of it, like the thing of like coming in and being like, no, you guys are your ways of doing things are dangerous and our ways of doing things are right. And like so if, if they don't view what what their life was like as as harmful, do you just sort of let that lie? Right. So my professor always taught us that like we don't label abuse or trauma for our clients that our clients label it for themselves. And I have had clients, like when I do bring it up and I'm like, oh, you know, I feel like that sounds like something that could have been like trauma technically. And they'll be like, well, that's not how I see it. Like that wasn't my experience of it. Then I do kind of let it lie. However, if I see that like other things are coming out of it, right? I tie it back to the original story that to me would be trauma, if that makes sense. But I don't label it for them. Like I allowed them to label if it was trauma or abuse for themselves. I think like what you said, makes total sense that you're not going to say this was trauma, this was abuse. But if it shows up in other places to sort of be like, hey, maybe this is tied to this. But I just I can imagine like a, an, un, an uninformed therapist being like, that sounds awful, <laughs> you know, about like something right. that is just I don't know, I'd be hard for me. I'm not a therapist. I'm not in school. And I think like as like a white person, I can imagine having bias and then having to really work to like check that. That was what was taught to me. Like when I was in school, they really were like, 
it's better for the client to label it as trauma. Like you don't want to be the one to label it as trauma because maybe that wasn't their experience. And then also there have been like cases in the past where psychologists have like influenced people to think that something happened when it didn't. And I think maybe that's where it's coming from is you don't want to like gaslight your clients into thinking like, oh, you should have been traumatized over that. Like, why are you not crying about this or whatever? Like, you don't want to make them think like, wait, did I have a weird reaction because I didn't cry over this? And it's like, no, every, every situation is different and it's personal and we all process and receive things differently. And that's okay. And can we talk a little bit about um, culturally informed interventions? So interventions that you would only use with people of certain cultures. And do you do that? Have you found those to be helpful? I don't think that I like use certain interventions with certain people. Like I use like Spanglish, like I use obviously like Spanglish with my Latinx clients. I think something across the board that has helped me because my practice is predominantly people of color is not being like, and this isn't an intervention, right? It's just kind of like a style as a therapist is not being like super stuffy and super serious. That doesn't work. Like I'm not going to be able to click and connect with a lot of my clients because they're already like kind of scared to start therapy to begin with. So I feel like that's what I use across the board, but there isn't like a specific intervention that I use with one population versus the other. Cause I use CBT with everybody. I use mindfulness with everybody. I talk about like family systems with everybody. So there isn't like a specific thing that I use. Like an example of that could potentially be like bringing spirituality into the therapy room, right? If, you know, some therapists maybe would, would do that with someone where you think like, oh, spirituality, religion, so like antithesis of therapy, but it's really not. And like a lot of people use their spirituality and their religious beliefs as a coping mechanism. And so working with the client to sort of like incorporate that into therapy. Have you ever, have you ever seen people do that or heard about people doing that? Oh yeah. 100%. I do it all the time for sure. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. I ask my clients, like, are, are there any like spiritual practices that you have that are important to you? How do you use them? Like some of my Muslim clients, like we just wrapped up Ramadan and, you know, what have you been doing during Ramadan that has been like really helpful for your mental health? What do you notice? I have clients that are super into like astrology and they'll be like, yeah, because I'm a Virgo. So I can't do this, this and this. And I'm like, okay, so then what are the benefits of being a Virgo? and how does it like empower you to be a Virgo so absolutely like I have so many clients of different faiths and um if there are tools that help to heal them cool like let's use that teach me more about what the Quran says about this and how do you implement that and what happens when the moon enters Gemini like what does that mean for you (laughs) so yeah I do use like some of that stuff and how do you feel working with clients who have a different faith than you do you feel like you're still able to to do that is there like a mental trick that you have to do to like get into that space I'm really comfortable with it like I don't mind it at all like it does I don't feel like any like type of way about it like it doesn't affect how I work as a therapist I think it's cool like I'm very into whatever helps you if it doesn't Mm -hmm. hinder you if it doesn't hurt you if it doesn't hurt other people okay how can we use this to help you heal so yeah there's like no issue it's nice that religion and therapy are not 
opposed Mm -hmm. that like they can work together and they can, you know, you can go and see a therapist and part of what you're working on for self-soothing or what you're working on for like coping mechanisms or to feel like you have more power in a powerless world can include their therapy stuff, breathing, whatever. And also like going to the mosque or um, practicing the, you know, religion of your country of origin. Like, I think that's really important for people to hear because I think that they think science and religion are, can't go together. And, and it's nice to hear that they really can. Oh yeah. And there's a lot of science that backs up how people who practice some sort of faith, whatever it is, any type of spirituality, they have like really strong coping skills and they can really build their resilience based off of their faith. So I think if anything, like the science backs the religion, I don't think they have to be separate. And I'm sure even the having a community living, you know, in an area with other people from Nigeria or other people from Venezuela or whatever, probably provides support that You know, I think a lot of us that are white have been taught of a false idea of a meritocracy and a false idea of individualism that is probably not good for our mental health. And so I imagine that like, you know, they're coming to you already with this idea of community, whether that's community who's going to judge them for being in therapy, but they still have it. (laughs) Right, right. You're so right. Because it's true. Like a lot of my clients are coming from cultures that are very collectivistic. And that's why they have such a fear of letting down their family because it's all for one and one for all. Like that's like the mentality. Whereas like American culture is all about like, look out for number one, you got to get ahead. But you're right, there are pros and cons to both. Both of them have positive and negative aspects to them. Do you feel like that the immigrant experience, the experience of being a first generation American is this thing that maybe a lot of therapists don't acknowledge or talk about, but is actually like needs to be brought into the room and actually does have a big impact on people's mental health? It's a big deal for sure in the world of mental health because you're navigating two worlds at once and it affects your language. It affects the like the way with which you carry yourself, your identity. Like there are like much deeper like factors that play into like the mental health of people who grow up children of immigrants. There's also like survivor mode that your parents are always on. So they can't always provide you with that love and attention and that warmth. So yeah, I think it it, like goes much deeper. And I think it's something that we need to address more or like it needs to um, maybe come out more like in therapy sessions or even like across the board and in our movies and our music and Mm -hmm. everything like talking about how hard it is to grow up like the child of immigrants and to be a first generation American. And to see like, you know, when you go in for that intake, when you talk to that therapist for the first time, do they bother to ask you that? Mm-hmm. Right. That sort of signals to you how they're looking at you. Are they looking at you just as this individual or are they looking at you as like part of this bigger system, part of this history? And I think that that view is going to be more in line with like the way that you experience the world versus like a white man who's like, I am an island. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Also, like a fear that I imagine, especially probably um, not, you know, not necessarily immigrants, but like black people in America, I'm sure are concerned going into therapy, like does their therapist believe black lives matter? And also is their therapist, if they're not also black, like validate someone says like, 
well, my coworker did this microaggression. Like my fear I'm projecting would be that my therapist would go, well, they didn't mean it. Like you're being very sensitive or like that wasn't racism or whatever. So like if someone feels like really nervous about that happening and they're listening to this, like, or that has happened to them in the past, what would they, what should they ask up front, you know, or what, what would happen in an intake ideally where they could maybe avoid that? Yeah. I mean, I've had people call me and ask me straight up, like, did you vote for Trump? <laughs> like just straight up, like they don't even care cutting to the chase. And I think that that's okay. I don't think that you necessarily have to wait for the therapist to make the first moves with certain questions or finding out about you. I tell my clients that my goal as their therapist is to work myself out of a job. Number one, like I want them to not need <laughs> me anymore. And like, number two, they're invested in this, like they're paying me for my service. So I want to make mm-hmm. sure that we're in alignment, that they're getting out of their therapy, what they need. And I think that because yeah, you are paying for this service. I think you have a right to ask like certain things because you want to make sure that your therapist like gets it and like really lines up with your views. And before we move on to the, to the next segment, I know that it is like primarily absolutely the therapist's responsibility to learn about your culture, be familiar with your culture. But like, is it appropriate to be like, here's this book that I think would really give you an insight into my family? Or here's this movie that I feel like does a really well good act, you know, can you kind of give your therapist homework in terms of like, getting them a little attuned to your culture if they're not? Like, what do you mean? Like, as far as like me recommending certain things to them or them recommending? No, them recommending to you. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I'm totally down. I have clients sometimes they won't be able to tell me what they're feeling. And they'll be like, Okay, Melissa, I'm gonna send you the lyrics to the song (laughs) and this is how I feel yeah like absolutely I I want to understand and I'm not one of these people that thinks that like talking or whatever is always going to be the healing thing sometimes I have people that draw and they'll send me a picture before the session they'll be like okay this is what I was feeling yesterday and I want to talk about it they'll send me a picture they'll send me lyrics I've had people send me music videos (laughs) yeah like whatever (laughs) whatever it is as long as you guys are communicating and that you're getting something out of your therapy, your therapist listens to you, gets you and is helping you to heal. That's wonderful. This was so helpful. Thank you. Stick around and we'll be asking three questions. just between us now it's time for our new segment three questions so melissa we love to kind of get inside the the minds of mental health professionals and their own mental health journey so i guess my first question is you know what is something you wish you had known about mental health when you were younger oh my gosh i wish that it was normalized i Mm -hmm. wish that it was acceptable to go to a therapist when i was younger and that's the whole reason that i became a therapist is because i hope to be like what i wish i had when i was going through what a lot of my clients were going through because it would have made life like so much easier to just have somebody to talk to yeah, that's and I think that that's amazing that you see that need and that you're trying to to fill it. And I also think your approach of kind of this grassroots way of of people being more comfortable with therapy is is really apt because yeah, we could like have billboards that are like go to therapy, but like it's when you know your friend or your cousin is like I went to therapy and it helped me so much that maybe you then like will actually trust it. Exactly. Yeah. And then our next question is 
What is something you're glad that you now know about mental health and that you implement into your daily life? We are not alone. Like we think that the stuff that we go through is like super, super unique. And sometimes it is pretty unique, but you're not alone in your struggle. I think that was one of the greatest gifts that becoming a therapist gave me is that it normalized a lot of stuff for me. And it's like, oh, wait, Melissa, the stuff that you were going through was not that unique to you. Like a lot of people (laughs) go through things too. So That I think is like the number one thing that I've learned is that we're not alone in our fight. Like a lot of other people are like fighting similar fights. You know, I think that the feeling of loneliness is is one of the worst Mm -hmm. feelings out there. And so to feel like, oh, I'm not alone in this struggle, even if someone else is 200 miles away going through it, at least they're there. Exactly. Sometimes it's nice to not be special. Yeah, because sometimes it makes you feel so isolated. You're like, oh my God, is it just me? Am I the only one that's going through this? And I think that's another thing too, is that I'm licensed in three states. So I'm licensed Pennsylvania, North Carolina, and South Carolina. And I'll have days where people that don't even know each other, they're on these different states. They're kind of going through things at the same time. Like Monday, I called it like breakup day. And I'm like, is it? breakup season because I had people from all different states I'm breaking up with my boyfriend my boyfriend has to break up with me we're gonna break up it was like all day like just breakups and stuff and I'm like wow this is so fascinating that people who could be so far from each other they don't even know each other they're going through something so similar at the same time it's so spooky (laughs) we should just have (laughs) national breakup day once a month so everyone knows when it's coming Um, (laughs) that's the only day you can break up the third and final question is what is something that you're still trying to learn and implement into your own mental health care, but are, you know, for whatever reason, struggling with it? Self-care, self-care, time off, days off. I am like the true daughter of like Cuban refugee survivors. And so I, if I have like a day off, I feel guilty. I feel mm-hmm. bad. It's like, I shouldn't do this, which is such a huge struggle for like a lot of other children of immigrants is that like what is a day off what is a vacation it feels like you're not allowed to so that's my big struggle and I don't know when I'll overcome it but hopefully soon (laughs) that's been a big theme in, in this mini season of asking you know mental health professionals a lot of them feel like that they're too busy that their stress level is high that they they're taking on too many obligations they can't relax and you know, I, I think that that society has geared us up to feel that way, that like we feel like if we're not being productive all of the time, then then we're messing up. Even when we have training to teach us, that's not true. Exactly. Yeah. Like that whole like rise and grind culture. Mm-hmm. And it's like sometimes you just want to like rise and rest. <laughs> like, yeah. not do anything. <laughs> oh, I, I joined a subreddit called anti-work and it's been mind-blowing for me there was one that was like people don't want to work anymore because of unemployment and then someone wrote um nobody ever wanted to work like newsflash exactly (laughs) we didn't didn't want to (laughs) and I was like this is it's been so great anyone who feels stressed out please join our anti-work it's been really like soothing for me (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. This was so informative and helpful. And to end the show, we like to make our guests feel uncomfortable. And if you could just give us a rating of how you felt we did as podcast hosts, if you had a nice time, any constructive criticism you have, um, any tips, (laughs) we'd love to hear it. 
Well, I thought you guys were phenomenal. Yeah, like your questions were on point. I thought it was great. I don't have any negative feedback whatsoever. No, I thought it was like 10 out of 10, gold star, amazing. (laughs) Thank you so much. Now we have to rethink this system because everyone's so nice to us. It looks like we're just asking for compliments. (laughs) No, only one person gave us feedback and I respect her. Thank you so much for joining us. Where can people find you, follow you, find out more about what you're doing and all of um, the activism that you bring to the world? You can find pictures of my Shih Tzu, all types of global advocacy stuff on my Instagram, which is MMB Healing. Thank you. Thank you so much. This was wonderful. Thank you to Melissa Moya Brinkman for being our guest. Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn. Produced by Melissa D. Monts. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. And check out video clips of our podcast on YouTube at youtube.com slash foreverdogteam or youtube.com slash justbetweenusshow. And make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. And at JBU Podcast on Instagram and at Allison Raskin and at Emotional Support Lady on Instagram and at Gabby Road and at BWM Pod on Instagram. That's where you can find us, all of us. Also, we never plug Melissa's Instagram, our producer, Melissa, Melissa D. Motts, and hers is She Is Not Melissa, and you should go look at it. Forever. Dog.